I was disappointed in the film. I wanted to love it, and I forced myself to not think about the 1990 movie. This was 2017 versus the book. And like I said to you, I didn't love it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want me to go into why yet or um, it just felt it felt so dark. There was there were so many moments of lightness in the book for members of the Losers Club and so many times where there was joy for them that summer. Mm -hmm. And I think that more than anything is what I felt was lacking that it from almost from the get after Georgie was killed, it was just heavy and dark and intense. And there were very few moments of friendship where you really got to watch them become the Losers Club. And so that was that was a big miss for me. I think that's why I was probably as disappointed as I was. That's Till the Words Run Out by singer-songwriter Josh Nolan off his album Fair City Lights, which you can purchase off iTunes, etc., and find a link in our show notes. And the voice you heard before was from the Great Book vs. Movie podcast, where they talked about the movie It and how it compares to the book that they love. We'll also be discussing it this week, along with Blade Runner 2049. Welcome to Mark S. Played, the movie podcast about movie podcasts and the discussions that come from them. I'm Hiro of the True Bromance Film Podcast, and joining me is Andrew of The Last New Wave and AB Film Review. Dairy's not like any town I've ever been in before. People die or disappear six times the national average. And that's just grown-ups. Kids are worse. Way, way worse. Andrew, so let's talk about these films and the fan service that they represent, I guess. Um, so we heard a little bit from Book versus Movie to start off the trailer, and they were not quite as high. I mean, they were split on their love for it, and I think that the, a lot of the focus there was the book and how it compared to the book. And I think that, you know, there, there are two different sort of camps, I guess, or... I, I, ideas of how to discuss films that are derived from existing properties and book versus movie, you know, puts their arms completely around, you know, that comparative analysis, you know, how does the book compare? But, you know, a lot of us or me in particular, when I go into a, a discussion about a film, I try to divorce myself a little bit from the existing property. If I have read it before, like for instance, it, I've already read before, and I, I had strong feelings for that book, but I try to divorce myself a little bit and go into it fresh and let the film stand for itself. Same thing with Blade Runner. You know, we, we go into this film with this 
expectation or this, whether it's positive or negative coming out of the original from 82. And I try not to let that cloud the way I'm view my experience. I mean, is that how, like, how, how do you view films that are coming off of properties and, and what do you think is, is the right way to do it? I guess. I mean, each film needs to be held on its own regard. And, you know, for a film like it, it's got two battles. The fact that people absolutely love the book and the pe- the fact that people absolutely are married to Tim Curry's version of Pennywise. Yeah. So that had a huge challenge in itself, trying to win over people as it is. And, you know, when the first trailers and pictures came out and there was kind of this terrible Photoshop version of uh, it or Pennywise leering out of, uh, out of this uh, drain pipe in a sewer. And everybody was like, oh, this already looks terrible. And they're already making a decision on the film itself without giving it a chance and actually sitting down and watching it. And so, yeah, you have to put the pre-existing text aside. You, you can't walk into a film going, well, I've read the book and it needs to do this, this and this. Because, you know, if you're going to be so dedicated and so faithful to the book, especially a book like it, then you're going to include scenes like, you know, it's talked a lot about uh, uh, in the book versus movie comparison, but, you know, the you're going to have to include the, the whole uh, child orgy scene in the book. <laughs> which... Okay, so we made it about a minute and a half before Andrew <laughs> brings up child orgy. Got it. Okay. <laughs> well... You know, I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, people are really dedicated and faithful. They they want their books to be, uh, their, their film adaptations of books and movies to be so uh, pure and, 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 you know, dedicated to what the original text said. So if they're so, you know, so in love with the original book, uh, then where are the people going, well, you know, that happened in it and it's a really important point of it because it does this and, uh, you know, why isn't child sex in this film? And... I don't know. Like, obviously, there's a there's a there is an answer. There's a clear answer that you, you simply can't do that. In thank film. you, for, thank um, you. At least you're not promoting <laughs> the entry of this into this into this film, sir. <laughs> well, but but yeah, you got to you got to distance yourself from the text. You got to look at it as its own thing because otherwise, you just get hung up in a whole bunch of different details. And you know, we can talk about it in that regard, and we can also talk about Blade Runner in the sense that everybody's like, oh, but. Is it faithful to the original film? Well, it's a sequel. Right. So does it have to be faithful? No, not really. It's just a continuation of a story. I think to a certain degree, though, right? I mean, you have to, you know, have... When when you're talking about a sequel, one would assume, unless you're doing like an anthology thing, you have to have the spirit of the original in there. Um, you know, and I, I think that... Do you, though? I mean, like, is it really necessary to have the spirit of the original? Like isn't isn't if you're doing a remake or or a reboot or something like that isn't isn't it vital to try and make it say its own thing rather than try and say everything that the original film or text said? Right, and I think that the in, in a perfect world we get a sequel that is in the spirit, in the vein, same aesthetic or something like at least you you there has to be some connective tissue there. But you're 100 percent right. I'm 100 percent with you that having something new to say or new to do or, or or something fresh is key because you don't want to have the same thing photocopied again. You know, Force Awakens comes up in my head where that film is loved and made a ton of money, but a lot of that is 
fan service, right? Uh, people wanted to see Chewbacca and Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and all these things. But some of the the criticism of that film is that it is a facsimile of Episode Four or the original Star Wars film. Yeah, which is it's understandable. Um, and you know, in that in that regard, there's obviously a lot of arguments to be said that. Uh, you know, for a series that had ended the last entry in particular, obviously, if the last trilogy uh, was not well loved. Um, so to regain that nostalgia, it did have to retread, you know, the path of the original film to get everybody to kind of hit the reset button. And I guess the next film in that series will be the huge test as to whether they're actually going to try and push that story forward in a, a unique, interesting manner. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, coming back to it and the other huge adaptation, which, which uh, Stephen King adaptation, which came out this year, which was The Dark Tower, you know, they're, they're two very different stories in, in one regard, but one is very faithful to the text, which is it. And then the other takes the concept of The Dark Tower and continues that story. It makes it essentially a sequel to the books. Now, I know that on your episode on True Bromance that you guys discussed it at length with uh, somebody who was interested in the actual books as well, and that was quite an interesting discussion. Um, but I think that it, 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 I don't know, that film bothers me because it does everything correct in the sense that it carries the story along properly. It, it is a continuation. You cannot properly adapt those books at all. Right, because no. Yeah, so I, I agree with you crazy. that the film in what you're saying that the film does, you know, create something new out of the thing. You know, it takes the base storyline and then tries to kind of continue the story. But I think that in that example, of the Dark Tower, the Dark Tower was just genuinely not a good movie. I mean, aside from the fact that the story was new or whatever, it just had huge issues with pacing and and storytelling issues. It was just a. I thought it was just a. Not a good movie. And from there, everything just kind of comes apart, whether it's fan service or not. Okay, so the the episode that I bring to the table is of a show that that's about... Essentially, it uh, discussed the history of uh, the making of the, the film and stuff like that. And there's a podcast called One Perfect Pod. And the guest on the show was Scott Wampler from Birth Movies Death, who... Before we were recording it, yes, of course, it's the place that had Devin Fraichi, but this is uh, post-Devin Fraichi. Uh, Scott Wampler is quite a good writer in a lot of regards, but he has become well-known as being the Stephen King fan, the the huge Dark Tower nerd. Yeah. And so... Sony called and I said, hey, what are you doing? I said... Um, Not much, just hanging out, you? Yeah, and I was like, nothing, you know, you. And they said, uh, well, what are you doing next week? And I said, working. We want to bring you up to New York, and then... Um, we're going to do a thing called 19 Hours in Bangor, and we can't tell you exactly what that entails, but um, you're going to go from New York to Bangor. You're going to be up there for the day, and it will ultimately culminate in a screening of The Dark Tower hosted by Stephen King. You want it? Like, yeah, of course of course, I want it. You know, I must burst into tears. And so we got out there, and um, long story short, they put us on a private jet from New York to Bangor. Then we got to Bangor and did, like, a tour of... You know, various locations that had either inspired King's work or that were important to his career. Uh, we went to his house. Um, we went to uh, a bookstore that was a, like an all Stephen King bookstore downtown. And then um, they took us to uh, dinner at this this restaurant. It was a Chinese restaurant that was 
uh, served as the basis for the, the Chinese res- restaurant in It, where the uh, the adult losers club uh, find some really horrible things in their fortune cookies. And we had dinner there, and then uh, about an hour and a half before the movie was supposed to start, they were like, uh, all right, well, we're going to walk over to this movie theater now. And we were like, oh, fuck, are we going to sit in this movie theater for like an hour before this thing starts? And they walked us in the back of the building, uh, and we were in like a small theater that was completely empty. And set up at the front of the theater was a, a long table with like, two bottles of water, uh, ten copies of the Dark Tower book, and a Sharpie, and a chair behind it. And that was it. And so as soon as we saw that, we knew what was going to happen. And we sat down in the front row, and everyone was just, like, not even moving. You know, we were, you know, pretty nervous. And then, sure enough, the door opened about two minutes later, and and King walked in. And he just walked in uh, and was like, well, I'm here. And then sat down at the table and started signing the books for us. And the rep was sort of like, well, you've got 20 minutes or so. Uh, you, you know, you can ask uh, Stephen whatever you'd like. He's here to, you know, he's here to talk with you. And then we sat and talked to him for, for about that amount of time and just kind of peppered him with, with questions. And it was amazing. It was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. And then we went and saw the movie, and that was unfortunate. <laughs> oh, what a sad ending to that particular story. The funny thing to me is it, it, it seemed that, that they put more effort and energy and creativity into this than they did into the, just the general marketing for the Dark Tower altogether. Why didn't they do more stuff like this? This People would have been more excited if, they, if they'd flashed the King connection a little bit more in the weeks building up. I would agree. When we got under the jet, there was a rose for each of us on each seat. And just that level of thoughtfulness was... Um, you know, uh, head and shoulders above anything else they did for this movie. One of his comments was essentially, you know, they put more care, more attention into getting these journalists up there just to meet Stephen King and watch this film than they did in actually doing the the story service. Right. And I think that's the key thing is that, you know, if, if filmmakers come at it with a interesting perspective or the ability to actually say something unique and, and interesting, uh, then... Isn't that fan service enough? You know, it did it. And I know that we both weren't the hugest fans of Blade Runner 2049, but I think if you love the film, uh, the original film, you're going to love the re- the sequel. So isn't it enough that they've, they've created fan service? It doesn't matter that it costs a heck of a lot of money and it's going to lose a lot of money. Are the fan, If the fans are happy, isn't that enough? So I guess you, you bring up multiple examples here. So with the Dark Tower thing and... And having the fan service, like you said, that they they put more care into making sure that you know the, the reporters and all that stuff were there, getting the word out. It, 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 it's almost like with the Dark Tower, they hung their hat simply on fan service. While Muschietti, when making it, he really put a lot of care into the story. He uh, made a few tweaks and changes and things like that to really connect with audiences. You know, even outside of the book's framework, and. You know, it kind of brings me to like, why do we have this fan service thing? Um, like, for instance, Blade Runner. Blade Runner is a film that is, even within our little film community, discussion community, whatever you want to call us, film Twitter, podcasters, whatever, we're divided on the original Blade Runner. Some people love it. Some people are hating it. Some people um, are indifferent to it. And, and it's fine. Everybody has a different perspective. But is that the property that you want to hang fan service on that you want to use to launch something into does is that have enough cachet there 
uh, for fans, you know, like who are we really speaking to? So one of the things that I, I, I read earlier was from a website called That Moment In, uh, an article written by the movie man Jackson talked about uh, uh, talking about Blade Runner. He, he writes the aftermath of that movie that was released in 82 is arguably more noteworthy than the actual movie itself. You know, it's not meant to slight Ridley Scott's original, but the aftermath and, you know, the second, third, fourth lives of Blade Runner are why Blade Runner 2049 exists today. And I found that to be like an interesting sort of thing is Blade Runner, the original wasn't widely, you know, praised, I don't think. I mean, I, I watched the Siskel and Ebert review of them and they both gave it thumbs down. They really disliked the film. They liked the aesthetic and they liked the world building, but they didn't like the story. In hindsight, we've sort of retconned and, and grown, grown a new appreciation of it. And I, is that the right property that you want to give fan service to? You know, if that, if that would make any sense. No, no, you are making sense. I think that the thing is, is that Blade Runner became a film uh, about fan service when there were multiple different versions of it. The studio did it themselves. Right. When they presented the film in the 80s and you know, test audiences went, what the fuck is this? And then they had to put in, you know, voiceover work and change the ending and stuff like that. When they did all of that, they immediately created a film that is about fan service because they were always going to be, you know, regardless of what film exists out there in the world, there are always going to be fans of it. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Mac and me, and there's probably about two other people in the world who actually enjoy oh, that. Oh my film. goodness! There you go. <laughs> Do you have like some sort of contractual obligation to bring up Mac and me on every show that you host? Like. <laughs> I do, I do. My okay. dad owned multiple McDonald's stores. It's part of the contract that uh, offspring of people who own McDonald's stores have to mention Mac and me. Lifelong contract, I'm sorry. <laughs> but essentially what I'm getting at is that, you know, there are fans of, of films of all ti- of all kinds out there. And, you know, they're going to champion films. That is the, the exact definition of what a, a cult classic is. So Blade Runner become a, became a cult classic because of the various different versions out there and, and how scarce they were to kind of uh, get a hold of and, and watch and understand the different intricacies. It is, a, it is a film that is designed to be picked apart and create a whole bunch of discussions. That That's what Philip K. Dick's work, his, his writing does to people. It, it's supposed to encourage thinking, encourage ideas, encourage discussions. And Ridley Scott's film did that very well. Now, for mass audiences, as I wrote in my own review, not to uh, pimp that, but essentially That's I wrote what we're my doing here, man. Saying, pimp away, please. Well, <laughs> That's, That's the whole point of Marcus Blade is for us to... You know, pimp out other shows and discussions, but let's be honest, we're primarily pimping out our own podcasts here, right? Exactly, exactly. So I wrote down, you know, in a world where wars are going on, the potential, uh, you know, nuclear war is raging, um, do people actually want to go and see a film that talks about how humans have become obsolete and we're going to be essentially uh, farmed out to all these jobs are going to be farmed out to androids and stuff like that. Do do people want to go and see a two and a half hour, two hour, 45 minute film where, you know, they're reminded that eventually they're going to be redundant and pointless. What an optimistic film. <laughs> I mean, the, but we audiences turn out for dystopian movies. I mean, Mad Max was a, a huge hit last year and, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess this one doesn't really talk about our ousting or our replacement by androids. But, I mean, 
there I think there is an audience for dystopian films. Oh, I think there is, but it's so small, you know, and that's the thing. It comes back to the cult cl- classic aspect of it. You know, there is, there is such a small audience for people who love Blade Runner as it is and champion it. It's not the kind of uh, cult film that has caught on the same way that, say, The Shawshank Redemption did. Okay, now The Shawshank Redemption, I'm not comparing, you know, very polar opposite films, but The Shawshank Redemption was a, a box office failure. It, it did terribly at the box office. And it was only when it hit VHS that people went, oh shit, this film is actually pretty good. Number one on and, IMDb? Well, exactly. I mean, it says a lot about IMDb users, but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you got to question the source, but still, I mean, it, the fan love for Shawshank is definitely undeniable. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, the, it had it built up that cult classic because that's a film that, that tells you exactly how to feel. Whereas Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 are films that ask questions and audiences don't like questions being asked of them. You know, they, they want to be able to go there and understand what's going on. You know, Mad Max Fury Road, was there any need for a sequel to Mad Max Thunderdome? No, there really wasn't. But we're glad that we got it. But it's a very simple film. You know, it is literally, uh, you know, bad guys chasing good guys, uh, good guys fight back and win. That that's it. Yeah, I've only seen the, I've only seen the first Mad Max, but does this one? Does Fury Road? Uh, how does it compare to the like? You know, you were saying earlier about like bringing your own stuff to the to the sequel or whatever, make it an original thing. Mm-hmm. To me, especially comparing it to the only one that I've seen, which is the original, um, it's a co- complete departure. I don't know, like I haven't seen two and three. Uh, yeah, it's a huge. It's it is a big difference between them. Um, but they're their own kind of stories, they're their own films, and their own, you know, excitement and extravaganza. You know, the the visual spectacle that you get with Mad Max Fury Road is not, it's not possible in Mad Max or Mad Max Two, at all, because obviously the budget just wasn't there, and they were doing it on a shoestring, which is understandable. But Technology wasn't quite there either. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, it's a simple story, and people go in and they understand exactly. You know. They don't need to have done, uh, like, the other uh, kind of, not podcast, but that uh, review, essentially, that I was going to bring up was uh, in What the Flick, so which is a great kind of uh, TV uh, review podcast uh, show, um, which has a bunch of different minds on there, great minds. And Ben Mankiewicz, who uh, was one of the people who was reviewing it, uh, he had the press release for, or the, the studio notes essentially, uh, that the critics get given before press screenings and stuff like that for the film. And he said, it's like a novel, you know, there was 20 pages or so of hard, deep text that you kind of expected to read before you even go in. And even then for audience members who don't get that 20 page, uh, you know, memo essentially for the, before the film, they've still got a huge bunch of text to read when they actually get into the cinema. And, you know, I was paying attention. And even then I was kind of like, okay, so this company bought this other company and got into shit and did something. I, I just threw that out. Cause I was like, that's too hard to pay attention to. And I can't imagine that anybody, uh, like the majority of audiences out there are sitting down going, okay, this is, this is something that I want to go and switch off my mind to. You know, it's it's just not a uh, hitting the four quadrants. Right. But it is hitting one quadrant, which is the fans. And, you know, they enjoy it. So I guess the next question is, is it 
reasonable then for studios to spend so much money on such a big film when it's going to have such a small return uh, audience-wise or financially. Right. So, I mean, here's where we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't, you know, because, you know, as I'm known to rail on, the studios are constantly making reboots, remakes, and trying to shoot for properties that are existing that'll bring in the buck you know we talk about the superhero movies the harry potter things anything any of these things the twilight movies come to mind these are like built-in fan bases that are rabid and 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 large i don't think that blade runner is that fan base to you know pander to or to cater to i mean i think that it it has a, a strong fan base because that book is really beloved even all these years later, people have a nostalgic attachment to that miniseries. So I think that, and let's be honest, the, the film itself was was very very good. Here, I mean, I don't know if if Blade Runner is that property because even it's a cinephiles movie, right? I mean, Blade Runner is is not um, Star Trek or Star Wars. These big sci fi uh, classics that you know appeal to a, a broad audience. Blade Runner is this niche thing that is even divided among cinephiles, and and I don't know if that's the best decision. I lo- I like the the output, right? I, I think Denis Villeneuve did a great job. I think he's tailor made for this world, but I mean the story is it, it's something that we've seen a million times before. So the the film isn't bringing anything new to drag in any new audiences, and the property existing. It was already like a mixed bag, so what's the point? Like, I, 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 that's where I land on your question is what's the freaking point? I think the leaping off then is that, you know, studios are at a point where original films either hit or they really miss. And when they really miss, it's a painful, costly uh, thing. But then when they try and re- revisit, uh, you know, uh, known IPs and stuff like that, you know, Ghostbusters or mm-hmm. Ghost in the Shell, for example, they're names that people are familiar with. Um, they just fail. And I think the studios and certainly film watchers and, and film lovers uh, certainly ask the same question, which is why do they fail? You know, even if they're a good film, uh, like John Carter, for example, I know that there's some people who absolutely love that film. I think it's quite a good film. Yeah, it was all right. Um, yeah. But I don't think it deserved to fail the way that it did because I think that it had the opportunity of, of getting an audience out there. Yeah. Well, Taylor Kitsch isn't exactly drawing them in, you know. His his work on Battleship and whatever else he does, I mean, that guy is that guy has the lowest batting average in all of Hollywood. <laughs> I, I feel so sorry for him as well because, you know, he is actually not a bad actor. Yeah. I, I enjoy him. I think he's good. I pity his um, good looks it, and his Hollywood status and his giant I paychecks. I really feel sorry for that guy. Well, I thought you were going to say something else, or giant something else, but uh, yeah, giant paychecks. That's it. As I sit um, here naked in my in, in my <laughs> incredibly hot hotel room podcasting on an old laptop, I feel I pity that guy. Well, that's it. Yeah, he he's pouring one out for you, Hara. I'm it's sure okay. he is. <laughs> but you know, so I don't know. I think that we we kind of have to ask the question of. When studios go, all right, they pull out the next uh, big name from their their IP pool, what are they actually aiming on doing? What what are they actually trying to say and do with that particular film? Are they just trying to make it for money or are they trying to actually do something? Now, on an episode of Linoleum Knife, 
uh, recent episode, they reviewed Blade Runner, but most importantly, they also reviewed My Little Pony. Now, the My Little Pony movie, I'm not a brony or anything like that. I don't know anything about a My brony. Little Pony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, you, you know about bronies, don't you? No, I've never even heard the term. It sounds disgusting. It sounds like some sort of, like a furry or like some sort of fetish party. You show up like dressed as a horse and, you know, you leave your keys in the, in the, in the, in the little key bowl and, you know, decide which, which horse you want to go home with or something. That's what it sounds like. Uh, well, they may have those parties. I'm not too sure. But what I found, I, I knew that bronies existed, but I didn't know much about them in the sense that, um, there is a documentary on Netflix, I think, about bronies. Uh, I haven't watched it, so I don't know if it's good or not. But in this episode, they explain what a brony is and why they're attached to uh, My Little Pony. And it's because of the fact that My Little Pony is surprisingly a good TV show. I haven't watched it, so I can't comment. But it's a good TV show for people who have PTSD. Uh, war, war veterans watch it and really? enjoy it. Yeah, which I thought was really fascinating. I'm really keen to actually uh, read up a bit more about it and find out a bit more about what they are getting out of this show and and what makes them, you know, feel at ease watching the show and, and find comfort in it. Um, but what I'm getting at, though, is that the other thing that they talk about is that there's, the film is out in cinemas right now. It's the uh, part of the competition to Blade Runner 2049. Um, you know, ideal... Uh, fighting films at the box office um but you know one of the <laughs> how is it doing in do comparison was, i'm curious i have no idea how uh it's doing pretty well it did eight million did the bronies um, turn out uh i'm not too sure i think that i think that the kids turned out and maybe the bronies are just waiting a week uh so they don't get you know called the police called or anything like that and right. we'll go next weekend show up in possibly. their crotchless the horse outfit and it's just you know there's, there's legal <laughs> ramifications for that kind of behavior exactly they look just like that wonder woman screening they're probably going to have a bronies only screening you know it, it makes sense it's it's safer for them all it's safer for the kids i want to i want to um, go to that i, I just want to be a fly on the wall i don't think i'd watch the movie as much as i'd watch the crowd and see the reactions do people like whinny when like you make horse noises when they when they're cheering and laughing <laughs> <laughs> i'm really not sure uh possibly possibly i'm fascinated um, by this brody thing yeah. <laughs> i can't let go <laughs> Well, now you've got something to Google. When we uh, when we finish, you'll be uh, going down a rabbit hole of brony talk. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm afraid that I'm going to get a virus on my computer. Thanks, thanks, Andrew. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> uh, look, it's my job. It's okay. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things that they commended the film for was the fact that they actually carried across the voice cast from the TV series, um, which is, you know, when they, they tend to make a TV series uh, to film adaptation, they, they tend to bring in famous voices to... Uh, voice and well-known characters which kind of goes against who uh you know the feeling of the film um but then they also said that it kind of broke the concept of the the film because um of the tv show because in the tv show the ponies have cats and in the film uh they meet a cat who walks on two legs and talks and interacts with them so in that regard, yes, they've done the right steps of actually, uh, you know, meeting the fans halfway and saying, all right, we're actually going to tell you a, a feature-length story of your favorite TV show, and we're going to provide you the voices of all the characters that you know and love. But then they go and screw it up by ruining the universe and, and stuff like that. So is that, like, 
is it pandering too far? Is it not paying attention to actually what the fans want? I'm not sure. I'm not going to watch it and, and let you know. But the thing is, I think that what I'm trying to get at is that people need to, when they're, they're making a film and they're adapting a property, they need to look about look at what makes that property you know, interesting or worthwhile telling or actually what people enjoy and love about it. And if they, they pay attention to that, then they'll be able to do a good adaptation. Isn't that kind of hard, though, to put your finger on, like what makes something popular? Because I have I've watched Blade Runner and I've, I have no idea what makes that movie so popular. I mean, the movie, the original looks great and uh, there's some cool stuff in there, but... I feel that the story of the original Blade Runner is is lackluster at best, and some of the acting is really shaky, and uh, I just don't see what the connection is. And that's just me personally. That's not be mourning anybody else. And almost the same thing applies to Blade Runner twenty forty nine. It's you know a lackluster story, beautiful to look at, and some shaky sort of uh, plot mechanics. And I just. I, I don't know. I mean, isn't it a little different? I can't put my finger on what would have made that original so popular or, I guess, popular to some folks for them to go and try to make a property like that. Well, I think it comes back to the the discussions that they probably had with their friends afterwards or or internet friends or whatever afterwards, you know, running through the hypotheticals of the, the world that's been presented. Right. And... You know, if that if that's what they enjoy, then great. But they've got to put their money where their mouth is. And, uh, you know, sure enough, they not enough people did that. And I think the thing is, is it, it probably didn't pass the pub test in the sense that, you know, blokes standing around in a pub talking about nonsense, are they going to be going, ah, uh, you know, replicants and stuff like this? Is Descartes a replicant? Yeah, no, no yeah. one's talking about that crap. People talk about no. bronies. Yeah, exactly. They talk about bronies, or they'll talk about you know, uh, you know, you'll float down here, that kind of thing. Do you think it passes the pub test? I think it does. Okay, I think it does because of clowns. Like, <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people who are terrified of clowns, and there's a safety in going to see a film in in a theater uh, about a, a frightening clown. And enjoying it, you know, it's it's part of the reason why the Annabelle films have been successful as well. You know, creepy dolls, they're frightening. They're they're you know, even if the film's not any good or not, uh, people will go and see it just because it's a horror film that touches on something that they're a little bit creeped out by. I think McDonald's kind of is missing out on the uh, the Ronald McDonald extended universe that they could be cashing in on. You know, you know, if your theory is, is correct, I think that we could see. Uh, hell, I mean, if you could make a movie out of a Legos, why couldn't you make a movie out of McDonald's? If you could make a movie out of an emoji, why couldn't you do it out of Ronald McDonald? You know, Ronald McDonald is cruising the land, linking up with bronies. I don't know. I mean, I think there's a moneymaker there. There is a moneymaker there. There's a whole universe that could be explored there. Uh, you know, Hamburglar, Grimace. What is Grimace? Go to Grimace's planet. Uh, that's a spin-off film. Um there is a lot that could be explored in the McDonald's universe. Um, but I think that's the key is that, you know, people don't want to go and see a film and feel like they're having something sold to them. Mm-hmm. And, 
and in some regards, you know, obviously, uh, maybe that's why all these companies failed after the first Blade Runner. They went and saw Blade Runner and they're like, oh, fuck you, Atari. I'm not supporting you anymore. Uh, Pan Am, I'm not flying you anymore. That kind of thing. I did not like that film. I, so therefore, by association, I'm not going to support you. You know, going back to book versus movie, they have a like a... You, and when you listen to their episode, which I love the show, they have a deep passion for the book. It, there's a like a, mm-hmm. a genuine passion for that book and for that property. Um, people who I've spoken to when they speak of it or the original miniseries... There's an excitement there that comes there. It's a different type of property that I believe fan service, you know, really fits well in. Um, mm. So I, I don't have any experience with, you know, people out in the world, like you're saying, at the pub, having that level of excitement, you know, like book versus movie does or that um, or that my brother does. I just – maybe you, you're onto something there where there's just – you know, you can't just do fan service for – you can't just throw it out willy nilly, man. Maybe they should just stop listening to us here on film Twitter and 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 stop start listening to the dudes at uh, McDonald's and stuff because uh, we don't obviously don't know what we're talking about. No, not at all. Uh, I've got no idea. Uh, and if you've listened this far, then hats off. You probably sat there and gone, "The fuck are they talking about?" Um, but, but I think I think the thing is that you know. What surprises me the most, and one of the things that always used to, I always used to question people whenever a new Marvel film came out and stuff like that, I would always go, you know, why are you sitting down and watching every single film from the beginning again? You know, you know that these films come out twice a year. Uh, you don't need to rewatch from Iron Man 1 all the way through to Thor Ragnarok. Right. Um, to understand what the plot of Thor Ragnarok is. You know, it's about Thor, he's on a planet. Uh, Hulk does some stuff. Uh, he'll live at the end, possibly. Of course, I'm not he will. sure. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You know what's going to happen with them because you know he signed for like seven more films. Of course, he's going to live. There's no stakes at any of those movies. Of course, because he saw in the heart of the sea. He knows how shitty he is. Yeah, like he's like, I got to <laughs> keep cashing this cow. I'm, exactly. Exactly. I'm the only Australian making money these days, so I can't. Mel Gibson's taking a dump on the thing, man. I got to make some yep. money out here. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's either that or charging two hundred and fifty dollars for signatures at comic cons and stuff like that. But Oof, hey, that whatever. can get ugly. I, there's a tw- oh yeah, I've seen. Uh, I went to a comic con in Tampa, and poor uh, uh, Kevin Sorbo—that's his name, right? The guy who played Hercules, Kevin Sorbo. Uh, he had his signing mm-hmm. booth, and he was next to one of the guys from The Walking Dead. The guy from The Walking Dead was charging like eighty-five dollars a signature, and the line was like around the room. And Kevin Sorbo had like thirty dollars. And then there was a line through it. It said twenty five, and then there was a line through that. And I mean, he was down to ten dollars. Had nobody standing in his line. I was like, man, I could see uh, what's his name falling, <laughs> falling so hard like that. If you think about that, like that's sad. That's in it's in a known place. It's in America. You know, you'd expect people. Uh, big people to go there but then uh, many many years ago Christopher Lloyd came to Perth for a Comic Con thing and he was sitting next to uh, Eric Roberts and same kind of thing happened everybody was like oh, I've got to get a you know a picture with uh, Doc Brown and all this kind of stuff I've got to get a you know see him and all this kind of stuff and, and get a signature and everything and poor Eric Roberts was just sitting there and I got my thing signed by Christopher Lloyd which was lovely and then I saw Eric Roberts just get up and walk away because nobody was at his table. Nobody was coming to sign things. And so I went up to him and I had a chat to him for about 10 minutes. And he was just happy that somebody was like, oh, yeah, 
You know who I am. Australia should be ashamed of themselves. Treating Ugh. treating the great Eric Roberts like a Kevin Sorbo. That's I'm disgusted with Australia. Now more than ever, yep. sir. Wow. Yeah. I look I'm sorry I had to bring that up. It's it is painful. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing is is that, you know, fans do strange things. And They'll sit down and they'll rewatch the complete series, the complete Marvel series before a new one comes out. Great, uh, you know they'll spend hundreds of dollars getting signatures at Comic Cons for a guy who's in who was famous thirty years ago. Fantastic, but then they'll also not go and see a film like Blade Runner. The fan support isn't there for some things, and and maybe the studios are, are ignorant and think that the fans exist. Like who was asking for a new Mummy film? Oh, nobody. <laughs> maybe no uh, maybe what the studio should do is go ahead to the Comic Cons and just stand there and watch the lines and say, "Hey, man, if uh, Eric Roberts isn't uh, isn't getting the lines, maybe we don't need a new American Ninja or whatever it is coming out next year. If Kevin Sorbo isn't getting the lines, maybe we shouldn't make the new Hercules movie. You know, we should probably rethink that. You know, we shouldn't just putting the rock in it doesn't make it a successful hit." But the thing is, is that I think that studios are too afraid of other studios stealing their IPs. So you'll often see people just coming, like, they'll realize, oh, no, we, the rights to this IP is going to run out in the next year. Oh, we just got to quickly get Fantastic something out Fantastic Four there. falls into that category, doesn't it? Exactly. It does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it's like, just because you own the rights to it doesn't mean that you have to do something with it. If you don't have anything to say about it, then just let it fall back to somebody else. And that's what happened with the Daredevil rights. I think Fox owned the rights to it. Uh, I could be wrong. Mm. But they were they were going to do something with uh, Joe Carnahan. And then at the last minute went, you know what? Marvel can have it back. And from what I understand, the Daredevil Netflix series is kind of good. Right. Uh, I haven't seen it. But, you know, if people enjoy it, that's great. So they were able to do something unique with that particular property. Like, we've got to stop being afraid of other companies stealing other ideas, especially in a world where Sony and Marvel are working together with Spider-Man. Like, just fucking let things happen. And, and you know, coming back to Blade Runner, it's as confusing as all heck because you got some random Arabian company, I think it is, that, that owns half the rights to it. And then you got Sony, who's paid for the other half of it, even though they're broke. And then you got Warner Brothers, who's helping promote the damn thing. So you got three different companies all working together to promote this this film, which essentially none of them really have a heart or soul in trying to make actually work. And fortunately enough for the fans, it does work. But for regular audiences and stuff like that, you know, is the studio even interested in actually getting this thing right or right. doing it properly and and making money? Uh, who knows? I don't think so. They gotta, they gotta ease up on these kinds of yeah. multi universes and old IPs. That's my high horse. Yeah, I, yeah. well, I think we at least, at least came up with a good solution of uh, uh, for the studios. You know, if, if we had billions of dollars, I think you and I could come up with uh, with better properties to tear off. Or though, you know, what maybe our fan service would kind of blind the way to, and suddenly we were doing all kinds of crazy things. You know, like BoJack Horseman might get like a wide movie or something like that, or. You know, these yeah. crazy things, but... Um, Mac and Me Too. Mac and Me Too, there you go. Or, or or Mac and Me, the anthology series, something like that, you know? Oh, God almighty. Like, he's got, like, a family now or something like that? Ugh. Sir, he has a family to begin with. It's, that's 
he comes to Earth with a whole family. I've never seen uh, it. You know, there is a whole mythology behind him, his his love for Coke. Uh, whoa, 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 what? Jeez. <laughs> Cocaine? No, it's all right. This is not the podcast to go into it. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have lost this. <laughs> well, if you want more Mac and me goes on Cocaine Talk, you can go ahead and go to the AB Film Review or The Last New Wave. But uh, <laughs> that's it. All right, man. So this has been Marcus Played, and if you've made it this far and you didn't get appalled by the conversation about bronies and the such, thanks for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard here, please subscribe on iTunes or your pod player of choice. And also do the same for the for the shows that we sampled here. We checked them out, so you should give them a shot too. And if you can't get enough of me and Andrew, check out our shows. Uh, Andrew can be found at AV Film Review and The Last New Wave. And you can find me every week at the True Bromance Film Podcast. And uh, check us out also on the following films that work. <laughs>